This is an ABC podcast. I'm gonna be round my vegetables. I'm gonna chow down my vegetables. Early in 2020, a vegetarian version of the iconic four and twenty meat pie hit service stations around the country. For out and proud vego Carly Godden, this reimagining of an Aussie classic was a sign. Vegetarianism had finally gone fully mainstream. And it got Carly thinking about the origins of a meat-free diet in Australia. They were a mass of besandled, wearing, fruit juice, drinking, sexually unorthodox socialists. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kirsty Melville. And today, in a very green episode of The History Listen, we join Carly on a personal quest to uncover the hidden past of vegetarians in Australia. First up, yep, you guessed it, we're heading into the kitchen. Well, she has an Irish stew. I did notice that one. And would you believe potato and an Irish stew? I'm with vegan chef and food author Zachary Bird. We're poring over a copy of Australia's first printed vegetarian cookbook, Dishes Without Meat. Published in 1905 by Alice Jevons, it's full of intriguing recipes. Some, like her veggie take on an Irish stew, seem pretty familiar. Others are a bit more out there. Take a recipe for a vegetable goose. Now that involves a rather bland tasting vegetable, one that we rarely see nowadays, the humble marrow. Sort of like a giant zucchini that you can stuff. And what I love about the vegetable goose recipe is that it's intended to take the place of a roast goose and it's meant to sit as the centerpiece in a big feast. Alice Jevons claims her cookbook offers nutritious and appetizing meat-free meals. So Zachary and I decided to cook up one of her 1905 specialities and see if it cuts the mustard, for us modern eaters, that is. The Hampstead cutlets jumped out at me as a delicious combination of ingredients, but the macaroni bone really speaks to just adding things for an aesthetic choice and making things look like meat. Come and find me, my name is Margarita. I've been trying out meatless recipes for most of my life. When I was nine, it dawned on me that meat was made from animals, so I stopped eating it. But perhaps, as mum jokes, this crossover to the plant side was inevitable. I was, after all, born at the Sydney Adventist Hospital, or the San. Back then, in the 1980s, their hospital food was meat-free. Is it any wonder I'd end up a bloody vego? But I'm about to find out that the San isn't just important to my story. It's part of a bigger nationwide tale about vegetarians in this country. We don't have any particular evidence of Indigenous Australians being vegetarian. This is Edgar Crook, historical researcher. He's also a lifelong vegetarian and more recently vegan. The estimates from different peoples in different places are that uh, they had a plant-based diet between 30 and 95%, depending on where they lived. So this is, yeah, very much uh, a European thing coming in to Australia. Edgar spent decades trying to trace Australia's vegetarian past. The vast majority in the early days certainly were, were religious. There were followers of the new church of Swedenborgians who were vegetarians in the 1830s coming over to Australia. And then that was followed by Adventists and Mormons and various different types of Methodist, Salvation Army. Most of them, particularly a lot of these new organisations, they were Bible literists. 
One particularly influential Bible literalist was the American Ellen White. She formed her own religion from her own spiritual visions and achieved a following. Like the other ones, they used that literalist looking at the Bible and looking back to Eden, where humans didn't eat meat. So they were looking to go back to that period where the line were laid down with the lamb, because in that period, there was no meat eating, nobody died, nobody got killed, or no animal, no person. So that they saw as what we should be trying to attain and Eden on Earth. But Ellen White didn't just preach abstinence from meat. By the mid-1800s, the Seventh-day Adventists had established themselves in Battle Creek, Michigan, in the US. Ellen White was determined to warn her flock against indulging in habits she considered dangerous, like drinking alcohol. They equated drinking with um, fleshly desires and, and with, certainly within the Adventists, they also had a general belief that alcohol caused a desire for meat and that meat also caused a desire for alcohol in that they mutually worked together to cause various forms of social ills and promiscuity and they could damage your health and lead you into sin. By indulging in flesh meats and rich gravies, the appetite becomes unnatural. The organs of digestion become injured. The mental faculties are beclouded. The baser passions are excited and the blood becomes impure. Eventually, the whole system becomes thoroughly depraved. In 1891, Ellen White docks in Sydney Harbour, and she spends almost a decade based in Australia, spreading her teachings. Her ideas also inspired the Kellogg's brothers. Yep, the Kellogg's brothers, makers of cereal that transformed breakfast around the world. The Kellogg brothers, and there was a few of them as Will and John and Merritt, they were very strong opponents of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Just for Kellogg's cornflakes. They were essentially looking for healthy foods to replace the current diet, sort of meat-based diet. So instead of having bacon for breakfast, you would have cereal. Dr Kellogg saw himself as a pioneer of treatments like hydrotherapy, where patients were plunged into baths of very hot or often very cold water that also have multiple treatments in its basement. That entire floor was devoted to enemas. A few even got doses of something known as electrotherapy. Luxury spa, it ain't. Another Kellogg brother, Merrick, who'd worked at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, came out to Australia in the 1890s. With Ellen White's blessing, he drew up plans for an Australian counterpart, the Sydney Adventist Hospital, i.e. the sand where I was born. In its early days, it too was big on natural health. They essentially believed that if people were provided with the right atmosphere and clean air and good vegetarian food, their health would improve. I'm back in the kitchen with vegan chef Zachary Bird, and we're getting underway on our first batch of veggie Hampstead cutlets, keeping true to Alice Jevons' 1905 recipe. So we've got about half a pound of mashed potato, and I have prepared some raw mustard, which is just dish or mustard in this case, the haricot beans, which are white beans, I'm using cannellini. We've got peas, fresh mint, and some vegan cheese. And the recipe calls for all of this to be mashed together. Great, let's get mashing. 
It really, this recipe feels like a dressed up bubble and squeak, so I don't think we can go too wrong today. So once we've moulded our round veggie cutlet patties, we've got to make a small hole and basically just shove in a single pre-cooked macaroni shell. Now, this bit of macaroni, it's supposed to resemble the knuckle bone that you might see in a real beef cutlet. What I've discovered is that macaroni at the time of publication were actually sold in really long tubes that you'd have to hand cut by yourself. So I assume Alice might have cut hers a little bit larger to match the size of the cutlet. That is some real turn of the century ingenuity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. there you go. Those look pretty good. I'll just give them a light spray in lieu of butter and these will take about 20 minutes in the oven. Cutlet creations with their macaroni bone were designed to impress Alice Jevons' dinner guests. I'm wondering just what was on the average plate in colonial Australia? The attitude, I think, was that meat was the central part of every meal. Australia was in fact promoted to working people as a place where you could have meat three times a day, which must have seemed amazing to people who were doing it hard in England. Jan O'Connell is a food historian and author. The mutton chop was probably the national dish through most of the 19th century. In the mid-1800s, there were nearly two million sheep in New South Wales and the bottom fell out of the market, so mutton became incredibly cheap. And there were many writers who complained that wherever you went, there was the ubiquitous mutton chop that was sort of thrown into a frying pan, cooked to death and then served up any old how. Mutton stewed or chops for breakfast, dry and tasteless, boiled in fat. Bread or brownie, tea or coffee, two hours hard yakka in front of that. All day long with living mutton, bits and belly wool and fleece, blinded by the yoke of wool and shirt and trousers stiff with grease till you long for sight of leafy greens, cabbage plots and water clear, and you crave for beef and butter as a boozer craves for beer. Australian agriculture was very slow in developing. Access to fruits and vegetables was generally pretty poor. Basically, you had potatoes and, and cabbage so people would grow their own, but there wasn't really an industry. The supply of fruit and vegetables changed quite a lot from the 1850s because that was when the gold rush brought a lot of Chinese immigrants to Australia. And, of course, some struck it rich on the gold fields and went home with a fortune, but others started market gardens. And right up until the middle of the 20th century, Chinese market gardens supplied a high proportion of the vegetables to all of the major Australian cities as well as other country areas. But we really didn't have a modern agriculture up until the Second World War where there was a demand for, for fruits and vegetables to can and then send to troops in the Pacific. Early vegetarians in Australia were importing lentils from India and cereals made by Kellogg's. But by the end of the 19th century, a new homegrown health food brand had landed, and it's one that you still see on today's supermarket shelves. It's Australia's favourite breakfast. We beat it number one. The general lack of food for vegetarians is why 
the Seventh Adventist started the Sanitarium Food Company, which first started producing food in 1898 to cater for their members. It initially produced products called granola and granos. Granos was kind of a forerunner of wheat bix, but didn't have sugar in it. They were very chewy, I imagine. <laughs> they also had a range of substitute meat products which had very unattractive names like protos, butos and nuttos. So we're just trying to free it from its can. Now, in all the years I've been vegetarian, for some reason I've never once tried out Sanitarium's modern version of nuttos, yeah. nut meat. First impressions? Can I speak freely? Yes, please do. <laughs> it reminds me uh, aesthetically and through scent of cat food. <laughs> I feel like I'm disparaging sanitarium. I'm never going to sponsor shit now. <laughs> but once we actually fried up the nut meat, it was a different story. Okay, so they've browned up now. Are you keen for a bit of a taste? Are you game? I'm absolutely raring to go. It's quite soft to cut into. Mm. I don't hate the, the flavour. Yeah. Yeah. Just light and peanutty, and I can see how this would have been a great protein alternative. Look, if you had just served me in a burger or something like that, no complaints. How do we prove our appreciation of God? By protecting all of the living things. It's the 1870s in Melbourne. A young man leads a Sunday school in prayer. But this isn't your average church. It's called the Progressive Spiritualist Lyceum, a place where you might hear the word vegetarian tossed about. At the pulpit is a teenage Alfred Deacon. This budding poet would go on to become Prime Minister of Australia in 1903. But for now, he's completely wrapped up in spiritualism. So spiritualism was a belief and arguably a religious tradition that came out of mid-Victoria, originally the United States. Historian Dr David Waldron. And essentially the guts of it was the notion that the dead are around us and that you can communicate and contact them through rituals such as, most famously, a seance. And this is where people would get together, they would sit in a circle, and certain people were particularly touched and had the capacity to reach into the other world to speak to our dear departed. It's easy to think of these people as occultists and things, but if you ask them, they'd be saying they're Protestant Christians. There was one group who saw themselves and took themselves very seriously. They'd deliberately try and demystify it. And then you had another more theatrical side where they'd do public shows and they'd have levitating tables and manifesting ectoplasm and all sorts of things. A bit like John Edwards mixed with, you know, Copperfield, you know, that sort of image. It's 1877 and Alfred Deacon is 20 years old. He's moved to write a novel, and it's a new interpretation of the 15th century Christian allegory, A Pilgrim's Progress. Now, he claims it was dictated to him under the supernatural guidance of John Bunyan, who's the author of the original text. In Alfred Deacon's version, once the hero, who's called Restless, becomes a vegetarian, he's spiritually transformed. The notion of there actually being a verifiable spirit world created the notion that in a sense, we're all spiritually interconnected with each other. That, so if I'm killing and eating another animal, in a sense, I'm harming all of us. There was also the notion that um, part of our duty of a Christian was to protect and care for all living things. And there's a bit of an argument that in the 19th century, you know, people became a lot more aware of what's involved in killing 
and preparing food to eat. You'd see it on the streets around you. You'd hear the cries of animals in distress. That became much more a pertinent sense of anxiety, particularly for the rising middle class. And it's not so much if you're a spiritualist, you had to be vegetarian, but rather there was sort of a commonality of those kinds of progressive traditions that sort of coalesced. So why then isn't Alfred Deakin a poster child for us vegetarians today? Here's Edgar Crook. When he was about, say, 21, when he decided that he actually he was not going to become a poet and he was actually going to become a barrister and, and go into politics, then uh, he very much dropped his association with the spiritualist movement or vegetarian organisation. But in private, Alfred Deakin very much continued to believe in the spiritual world. And he took up something called a Spartan diet, which really was vegetarian. And I think it's also very revealing that once Alfred Deakin's elected to the Victorian State Parliament in 1879, the very first thing that he does is push through some of Australia's earliest animal welfare laws. And he also backs the foundation of the RSPCA. As an example of how Alfred Deakin would use his political position to do something to promote the welfare of animals... I came across a great uh, insult directed against Deacon supporters saying that they were a mass of, how was it put, besandled, wearing, fruit juice, drinking, sexually unorthodox socialists. <laughs> By 1900, Australia is moving away from being a radical society where it's acceptable to have differing views to be publicly vegetarian or to be publicly a spiritualist. The Bulletin, which is a major Australian publication coming out of Sydney, created this myth of the real Australian being from the outback, which were developed by a bunch of inner city elites in, in Sydney. We're also talking about the time of federation where they're trying to create an idea of Australia, a unifying myth. And the unifying myth that they chose was this sort of meat-eating, larrikin, drinking bloke. So vegetarianism was very much tied to European effeminacy, but also to the Chinese. Letter to the Bulletin, 1900. Last Sunday I was at Coogee Beach when the fair-skinned horror rolled up, precisely at three. A shapely girl of 18. At the first glance, she appeared alone, but from the tail of her eyes, she was watching the crawlsome thing in her wake. An undersized chow. A Chinaman, almost lacking the arm power to carry his own nasty infant. There was this mistaken idea that because the Chinese had brought in market gardening, that they became attuned to vegetarianism. And the bulletin was hugely anti-Chinese, I mean, to quite an extraordinary extent, a vegetarian diet became known as the cabbage diet. This shameless girl had kept ahead because the blood of meat ran in her veins. She could not help outpacing this slant-eyed product of a cabbage, the chow she called her husband. I'm here in the kitchen once again with vegan chef Zachary Bird. The batch of ham-said cutlets that we've made to Alice Jevons' 1905 original recipe are happily cooking away in the oven. But now we've decided to go a little rogue on Alice. Zachary's going to make his own version of the cutlets using updated ingredients. Then we'll taste test these alongside Alice's originals and see how they stack up. I have 150 grams of vital wheat gluten, pure protein, 
yep. ready to go. And in honor of Alice's original recipe, I'm using the white beans as the base. So uh, vital wheat gluten's really amazing. It's time to get blending. So that's our wet ingredient. And to the vital wheat gluten, we're gonna be adding an array of flavors. So these are just different herbs and spices, a bit of mushroom seasoning. And now it's as simple as combining the wet and the dry. I think as tribute to Alice, we should try and put a macaroni bone in at least. The gluten mix has to sit for a few minutes before we get our hands dirty again. Leaving that to be 100% your creation. <laughs> All right, we've got four Melbourne cutlets ready to go into the oven as well. Awesome. I'll wait and try it. Well, your blue just carry on. After the era of the mutton chop, we really had the era of steak and eggs. And during the Depression in the 1930s in South Australia, there was a ration of meat given to the people who didn't have jobs. And apparently it wasn't very good quality. It was poor quality mutton and sausages. The unemployed were having none of it. In Adelaide on January 9th, 1931, they hit the streets. So there was the unemployed and trade unionists and uh, a crowd of thousands descended upon the Adelaide Treasury. Now, the crowd was expecting to meet the South Australian Premier, but instead, a bunch of police officers burst out from behind the doors, ready to take on the mob. This chaotic, meat-driven scene became known as the Adelaide Beef Riot. So the focus on meat back then was as strong as ever. And eventually, steak was back on the menu for the unemployed after the South Australian government reinstated their beef rations. To me, the first part of the 20th century seemed to be kind of like the dark ages of being a vegetarian. Following a plant-based diet was really on the nose. So I'm surprised to learn that by the 1930s, going veg was back on the table, or at least for some. So they were very keen on exercise, on nudity. Edgar Crook is talking here about a group called the Free Body Culture Movement, or Freie Körperkultur, which began in Germany. They believed very strongly in uh, air and sunbathing, which was to get out naked in nature. And also part of that was, was vegetarianism. And certainly that was strong in Australia as well. The free body culture movement did have a darker side. This was especially true in its home country when it was appropriated by the German Reich, as you can hear in this youth athletic demonstration from the 1930s. The belief in eugenics. There was a lot of belief in uh, a new and better race. But the Germans weren't the first to promote exercise as a way to achieve the perfect body. To those of you who know me now as the diving Venus, Queen of the Mermaids, Neptune's daughter and whatnot, this may sound very strange, but the truth was that I was terrified at the thought of swimming. Australian Annette Kellerman rose to fame in the 1910s with her grand displays of swimming, especially synchronised. When she went on to Hollywood, she starred in lavish films as an aquatic goddess. And she did it all on a vegetarian diet. Annette Kerman, she was born in 1886. She was a, a lifelong vegetarian and she originally took up swimming to strengthen her legs because she had polio as a child. If my father had not been persistent, I'm sure I could never have overcome my childish dread and fears. 
But for his wisdom, I might have been hobbling about on crutches today. She started giving demonstrations of swimming. So she traveled around Europe and uh, swam down the Thames and the Seine and the Danube. She recommended that uh, good health can be maintained on a flesh-free diet. She then went on to open uh, a range of health food stores. Despite this kind of 1930s celebrity endorsement, being vegetarian remained pretty niche. That is, until the counterculture movement hit Australia in the late 1960s and 70s. There was definitely a swing towards vegetarian food and it was called macrobiotics, lentils and beans and rice. And it was shamelessly parodied in the TV series The Young Ones where Neil, who was the dopey hippie person, was always cooking lentils. I wonder how many lentils I've ever eaten in my life. Oh! No, it must be more than that, Viv. Lentils are really good, you know? No matter how many times you have them, they never get boring. Macrobiotics. It's very much part of a revolt against materialism and mass production and commercialised food. And it also had something to do with the interest in Eastern religions, which promoted a vegetarian way of eating. Unlike other 70s trends, think roller discos or safari suits, vegetarianism would stick around. The movement by the 1950s and 1960s, so leading up to the period when I became involved, it tended to be regarded as something for conservative elderly women, which was, of course, in those days was, was something of a put-down, that, uh, you know, this is something for people who are sentimental about animals, who love cute kittens and puppies, but it's not a serious ethical movement. This is the Australian philosopher Peter Singer. I was born in Melbourne just after the war. My parents were refugees from the Nazis. They'd come from Austria. They sent me to Press Hill, which was a progressive school. Funnily enough, I also went to Press Hill. And it's at that school that I first learnt about Peter Singer's groundbreaking book, Animal Liberation. The book's genesis began in the 1970s, when Peter was studying at Oxford University. It was his student friends who opened his eyes to the horrors of factory farming. I hadn't known about this. I hadn't known that the eggs that I was eating were coming from hens in small wire cages so small they couldn't even stretch their wings. I had no idea that veal was coming from calves kept in stalls that they couldn't even turn around in. At the time, the media were all over Peter's ideas about animal rights, beliefs that, back then, stirred up some pretty awkward exchanges. It was initially hard to get the animal movement taken seriously. I remember that when Animal Liberation came out in 1975, I was invited to go on the Don Lane show. Ladies and gentlemen, Don Lane! And uh, he clearly hadn't been well briefed on what I was there to talk about. And fairly soon I said, look, you know, yes, there is cruelty to dogs and cats, but this is a tiny minority of the amount of cruelty we inflict on animals. And he sort of was somewhat taken aback and then said, well, what do you want to do about this? And I said, I think we should stop eating them. And he obviously was unprepared for that and didn't know what to say. And uh, I think the interview didn't get very much further than that point. But this was always the problem to get taken seriously within Australia. And that took some years. I'm going to be around 
It's clear that us bloody vegos, well, we're here to stay. Around 12% of Australians are choosing to go meat-free, and the numbers are only growing year on year. Thankfully, there's now plenty of meat-free alternatives. Beefless beef or chickenless chicken. Speaking of which, let's head back into vegan chef Zachary Bird's kitchen one last time for our veggie hand-set cutlet bake-off. Everything's out of the oven. So we've got everything side by side. We do, we've got Hampstead cutlets, fresh and ready. We have my own creation, which is a chicken-style cutlet made from vital wheat gluten. Okay, well, should we try the traditional recipe first, Alice's own? I would love right. a Hampstead cutlet. Let's get stuck into it. They remind me of minted peas with a little bit of cheese, which I'm never mad at that flavor combination. Mm. Ooh, okay, shall we move on to your creation? My creation, which is my chicken cutlet with a little macaroni bone. Lots of different textures and mm. a little bit more chew than a mashed potato, mm, I think. Mm. Yeah, that's a big difference. Mm. Mm, mm. It has chew, so it gives you that satiated feeling that you feel like you've eaten a big chunk of protein or something like that, whereas potato isn't going to give you that unless you pair it with that toasted bread, like Alice suggests. Exactly. I will say her macaroni bone idea is something that I will be taking away with me. I love it. My one's got nice and crispy, and it does read as a bone when I bite through it. Mm. Yeah, I'm gonna try the, the bone bit. And in the end, Zachary's cutlet takes the cake. The carrot cake, of course. Mm. Those Bloody Veggos was produced by Carly Godden, with sound engineer Richard Gervin. I'm Kirsty Melville. Join me for another journey down the time tunnel next time here on the History Listen. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.